Welcome to C4 Atlantis TechSmarts podcast, where we discuss the convergence of art and technology affecting the creative sector. Hi, and welcome to the TechSmart podcast. I'm Audrey Gomez, Education Manager for C4 Atlanta, and with me today is Adam Hutler from Fractured Atlas. Today we're going to talk about net neutrality, which has been a popular buzzword recently. We're going to talk about why that's important in the art community. So first of all, Adam, if you could just let us know a little bit more about Fractured Atlas, who you are and what you do. Sure. So thanks thanks for having me. Adam Hutler, I'm the founder and CEO of Fractured Atlas. We're a nonprofit technology company that helps artists of all kinds with all of the sort of business aspects of their work. So we help artists raise money, get insurance, sell tickets, track their fans and supporters, find or manage space, really kind of everything but the art itself. We're, we're non-curatorial. We don't get involved in the artistic process. We leave that to you. But we try to provide as much as possible of the sort of back office infrastructure that you need to be able to focus on, on the important stuff, which is making art. The other thing I'm doing right now is that I'm, I'm currently working on a exciting special project. I've been working on launching something called the Exponential Creativity Fund, which is envisioned as a new impact investment fund that will be making early stage venture capital investments in, uh, in technology innovations related to human creativity. So uh, entrepreneurs who are using exponential technologies to kind of enhance or empower human creativity in, in various different ways. And that's, I mentioned that one, because it's what I'm doing right now, but also because I think it's, it's particularly relevant to the, to the topic at hand. Yeah, absolutely. And that sounds really, really interesting, you know, very new and innovative and, and definitely has the potential to push entrepreneurship in the arts. Wow, I'm really excited to hear more about that. So you mentioned Fractured Atlas and the resources that you guys offer. And I think what's, what's great to note, too, is that you guys are a national organization, so you serve artists all over the country and not just here in Georgia. Yeah, we, we reach a total of over 500,000 artists across mostly North America, a little bit outside of North America, obviously particularly in the U.S. and, and concentrated in all the metro areas that you might expect, New York, L.A., the Bay Area, Austin, Texas, but certainly Atlanta has been a big community for us for a long time. Great. Yeah, and we'll give the uh, web address at the end for Fractured Atlas so that you can find out more about them if you're interested. So, Adam, let's maybe explain what net neutrality is and what it isn't, because I think it's been a really big buzzword over the last few years, as there's been a lot of different debates about how to proceed with net neutrality. So maybe you can just explain to us what it is and kind of where we are with it right now. Sure. So net neutrality is, is basically it's the principle that the Internet should be an open and unbiased platform. And that's how it's always been, and that's what kind of has been so incredible about the Internet and why it has lowered barriers to entry for new voices in terms of content and also new services, companies, all the rest. It's one of the great things about the Internet. So there's often some kind of Orwellian doublespeak that you hear from opponents of net neutrality where they start talking about, you know, the Internet's never been regulated. Why would we start regulating it now? And and that's, I would say, kind of misleading and, and mm-hmm. I would say maybe even dishonest in that 
you know, net neutrality hasn't been strongly regulated historically, but it has always been a, a bedrock principle of the way the internet was designed to work and the way that it always has worked. And it's been, I think, a big factor in allowing a, a flourishing of new platforms and services and companies and, and, and entrepreneurial ventures and, and new voices um, in the internet century. Right. Just to kind of, I guess, follow up with that, why do you feel that it's kind of dishonest, I guess, uh, or misleading beyond that it, it's kind of one of these core principles? Is there anything right. in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So here's one way to think about it, right? Without mm-hmm. net neutrality, the companies that own the underlying infrastructure, the underlying lines on which internet traffic flows, the ISPs basically, without net neutrality, they have the ability to discriminate in terms of how they treat different content or services. And they can discriminate for economic reasons or they could plausibly discriminate for political reasons as well. So if you want to think about how not having that could sort of stifle innovation. I mean, let's imagine a scenario in which, you know, in the early days of the internet, when Amazon first started demonstrating traction and picking up speed, what if Barnes and Noble had come along and said, you know, we're going to pay a bunch of money to all of the ISPs to prioritize our traffic and to slow Amazon's to a crawl, totally undermining Amazon's ability to interact with its customers. Right. right. In the real world, I don't know how you could do that legally. By real world, I mean in sort of meat space, right? I don't know how you could do right. that legally. And being able to do that on the internet is just as problematic. So, you know, what if MySpace had, had prevented the rise of Facebook? What if the television broadcasters had, you know, paid to favor their content over YouTube when it was new? Worse, you know, what if people with political agendas, right? What if the Koch brothers come along and and pay the ISPs to favor conservative media over liberal media or the other way around. There's all sorts of problems that are introduced and moral hazards that arise if we don't honor this, uh, this essential principle. Right. So it sounds like it's really laying the foundation for the groundwork for policy to come and what the precedent will be as much as it is, you know, kind of making decisions about where we are right now. You mentioned kind of some of the implications for a lot of traditional corporations or political motives, but specifically for artists and art workers, what are some of those major concerns over this kind of issue of net neutrality? Well, look, it's the basic principle that without net neutrality, there is an unfair advantage held by incumbents and moneyed interests, whatever that may be, whether that's a business Mm -hmm. thing like Barnes & Noble versus Amazon, or whether that's Taylor Swift versus some brilliant new musician who nobody's heard of, but who, if given a chance, is going to attract a following online. If you understand the basic underlying principles, you can imagine a limitless number of scenarios in which, you know, content A is prioritized unfairly over content B. It favors the people with the money to pay for prioritization, right? right. Um, and that, that means incumbents, right? So whether you're talking about a service or, a, or an artistic voice, it's irrelevant. It's going to be a, a factor for all of those cases. It's so funny you mentioned Taylor Swift, because I think as a musician, 
I just know of so many scenarios where, you know, people have told me about the music industry where an artist gets signed to a label and they're really excited and then they find out later that part of the reason they were signed to that label was to shelf their records so that the label could promote another artist. So I think it's not a concept that we're unfamiliar with. It's, it's another way of controlling what art gets kind of amplified and gets a voice right. and what doesn't. So, you know, look, in the 20th century, if I can oversimplify a little bit, purposes. You know, you had a, a handful of basically old white men with a lot of money and a lot of power who got to decide which voices could be heard and which would be right. stifled. The great thing about the internet is that it's dismantled that. It hasn't removed entirely the influence of gatekeepers, but it's dramatically weakened them and opened up all sorts of opportunities for artists and companies to connect directly with their customers and their audience in ways that are just super exciting and have been great catalysts for all sorts of innovation, both economic and, and cultural. And so dismantling net neutrality or rejecting net neutrality as a principle, to some extent, pushes us back in the direction of that older model where the ISPs mm -hmm. now become these dangerously powerful gatekeepers. And what's particularly offensive about that idea is when you understand the extent to which these ISPs would not have these networks without enormous public subsidies, right? I mean, right. even just the ground that they're digging up to lay down their wires, they wouldn't be where they are today without the backing of the public. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea that they have some kind of public service obligation. Absolutely. So in terms of what's going on right now in the current landscape, there's a lot for artists to kind of be aware of going on with the FCC. So what's going on in terms of the current legislative scope and policies that are being made around net neutrality? Yeah, well, so the FCC doesn't make legislation, of course. They, they're a regulatory right. agency. And, you know, the FCC under President Obama basically came out in favor of net neutrality. Trump's been able to appoint a new chair of the FCC, so it's shifted the balance from, you know, to a place where there's two Republicans, one Democrat now. And, you know, the new chair is very opposed to net neutrality. It's kind of on the record opposing net neutrality. And so the assumption that I think everyone has is that net neutrality is under serious threat right now mm -hmm. and is likely to be dismantled at the regulatory level mm -hmm. very soon. Right. And I know that there's actually public comment open right now. And just to kind of lay the expectation, we're taping this. In, in June, so by the time it airs, that public comment may have closed, but I know that if you go to the FCC website, there is a place for people to talk about things that they're interested in. Are there any other ways that people can be involved sharing their thoughts or their voice about how net neutrality might affect them or their business? Yeah, so I know everybody always says use the FCC's public comment line, and it's not like that's a bad idea. But I'm pretty pessimistic right now about the likelihood of success through that route. I think the FCC's, I think they've made up their mind. They're going to decide what they're going to decide. And it kind of doesn't matter what people say or how many of them say it on the comment line. I think we need to take a step back and, and try to approach this at the legislative level because, of course, legislation 
is ultimately um, more important than, or regulation is about how that legislation is enforced and, and enacted. So I think, you know, we need to think about the long game here and express to our elected officials in Congress, so both the House and the Senate, we need to make sure that they understand the importance of net neutrality. And I think, you know, they're used to hearing from folks like Google or Netflix, some of the big companies that favor net neutrality and benefit from net neutrality. And certainly those are some very important, powerful voices. But I think there's also real power and importance in them hearing from kind of unexpected, smaller, more idiosyncratic voices. So, you know, an individual musician in their district contacting them to say, you know, here's what this means to me. This is my personal story. This is why I think this is important and want you to support this. Really could be effective. And certainly I would say is probably a more promising line of attack than the FCC right now. Great. And as our executive director, Jessica Holland, likes to say, people vote, corporations don't vote. So I think there is power in contacting your legislator. I mean, they know that you're in their district, that you have the potential to vote or not vote for them based on how they express your values or don't express your values. There's always power in reaching out to those elected officials. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing I would add on, on that, and this is just based on conversations I've had with, with elected officials at various different levels uh, over the years, the impact of your communication is to some extent a function of how much you went out of your way to do it, right? So there's a lot of these apps now where, you know, you, you do a one-click thing and it sends some form boilerplate to all your elected officials or whatever. That's not without value, but it's a very, very limited value because they're not stupid. They know that that was a very low bar for you to clear, and so it could have just been an impulse thing or whatever. On the other end of the spectrum, you travel to Washington, you show up at their office, you wait outside you know, to get time with one of their staffers, and you sit there and tell your personal story. That's going to make a much bigger impact because they know, wow, you must really care about this to have gone to all that effort. So, you know, obviously there's a whole huge spectrum of, of ways of engaging in, in between those things. There's town halls, there's making phone calls, there's all this stuff. So it's, uh, just as a general principle, though, I would keep that in mind for this or any advocacy that you do. Yeah, certainly. You know, if you're spending the postage to send a letter in the mail, I think that has more impact than sending just pushing send on the app. I think kind of a multi-pronged approach sometimes is good as well. You know, the more times that you can let them know how you feel, the more effective sometimes it is at getting their point across. Sure. You know, you want to let them know in different contexts. You want to let different people know. You want to say it again and again. You want to try to build a relationship if you can. I mean, if you can get to a place where they answer the phone and recognize your voice, that's a good thing. I mean, it might be annoying for them, but it's good for you. It means you're getting through. Great. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. This has been great, and I think it's really informative for all of our artists in our community to kind of know how this could potentially affect them and their arts business. Do you want to go ahead and give us the website for Fractured Atlas so that they can find out more and uh, what services you offer? Sure thing. We're at fracturedatlas.org. So fractured like broken, atlas like the Greek titan or a map of the world, .org, fracturedatlas.org. Great. Thank you so much for our conversation today, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for having me. Want to learn more about C4 Atlanta? Visit c4atlanta.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C4Atlanta. 
Join us Saturday, July 15th for Summer Social. This one-day, two-course opportunity focuses on helping artists gain a better understanding of how to enhance their social media presence. Learn more or register online at c4atlanta.org backslash training. Looking for something to do this summer? Join us at the Masquerade in downtown Atlanta on August 5th for Activate ATL, a free concert celebration to honor the folks who hold power for change, voters just like you. Atlanta-based bands and artists will celebrate the power to lead our city through voting and committing to community issues. Pledge to vote or reserve your free ticket online at c4atlanta.org. This event is free and open to the general public.